can, make your way to Revelation chapter 12, where we find ourselves in the middle, smack dab in the middle, of the Great Tribulation, right at the middle point, and very intriguing chapter to take a look at, chapter 12. You can turn there, um, because that's where we're headed. And as you do that, we'll have a word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, we like to always acknowledge your presence here by your Holy Spirit and also acknowledge our desperate need to understand spiritual things. We, we need the Holy Spirit to interpret these truths to our hearts, and you're so faithful to do that. So please help us. We yield our hearts to you in your presence to hear your word for the um, goal of obeying it so that we might be not only hearers of the word, but doers, and by doing your word, be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as a kid growing up in Long Island, New York, my parents on occasion would take us to New York City, and there on a couple uh, occasions, I was impacted by a vision of an enormous woman whose silhouette stood out against the skyline. And I guess you would figure it out by now as the lights go off and the slide comes on, it was the Statue of Liberty. Now, my brothers and my sister and I were so excited because we were gonna climb to the top of the torch all 378 steps. But alas, being seven or eight years old, we did not make it all the way up. And I have a vivid memory of bursting into tears because I wanted to go up and look out the window, but we didn't make it, we had to turn around. And I don't remember having an elevator at that time. I don't think they had elevators in those days. Just kidding. <laughs> That was a, a, a little slam to me, but you didn't seem to get it. It was back when the, when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. Now, the Statue of Liberty, the vision of Lady Liberty, thank you, you can keep that on just for as I describe some fun facts about her. Uh, this vision could be seen welcoming in immigrants, especially coming from Europe, uh, from 1886. And uh, she's 305 feet tall, and she's holding a tablet in her left hand, and the date inscribed there is July 4th, uh, 1776. And on her head, a crown of seven rays, and those are symbolic, they are symbolic of the seven continents of the world because she is, that torch is lighting the way to freedom from oppression for everybody in the world, all seven continents. And even at her feet, some more symbols of uh, unshackled chains and just speaking of the, the freedom that she illuminates in the darkness. And so, and uh, speaking of feet, if you're interested, she wears a size 879 in sandals. So she's quite an enormous sight. Thank you for the slide. Now, a great grand vision of a woman with wonderful symbolic significance, not unlike another vision of an enormous woman who lights up the night skies for the apostle 
John. And here in Revelation chapter 12, uh, John the Apostle will be given a wondrous vision of the spiritual kind uh, of a woman. She will be clothed with the sun and her feet will be upon the moon. And she too will be wearing a crown, but not with seven rays, but rather with, with 12 stars. And they all have symbolism, which speaks of uh, truths that we need to take to heart. Now, the vision of this woman, like Lady Liberty, really does have some great significance. And we're going to take a look at this vision of this woman, along with two other characters here mentioned in chapter 12. So if you're taking notes, the way we're going to go through the chapter just divides nicely every several verses. Number one would be the three key characters among the woman is one of them. And then uh, that's verses 1 through 6. And then war in heaven, verses 7 through 12. And then war on the earth, verses 13 through 17. Let's pick up there at verse 1 and read to 6. Now a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there will pause. 1,260 days can be rendered 42 months or three and a half years. And so here, our first point, we're going to take a look at our cast of characters. These characters are important. We'll handle three of them, but in the next two chapters, we'll be introduced to about seven characters. They're all playing very important roles here at the end of the world, as we call it, but the beginning of his kingdom, as we pray and have prayed for 2,000 years, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the second coming comes in quite a tumultuous way on earth, but the emphasis always is on the new life and the new world that God is coming to establish. Now, before we look at the woman and two other key figures, let's take a look at where we are. Just with a chart, the lights can go dim and you can... Check this out. I've tried to make it as easy to understand as possible. We're in the church age. The Bible says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at an hour that no man knows except, it will be at a time when people will be taken by surprise. Nobody will be suspecting anything spiritual shall be happening. The rapture first uh, 
Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall be taken up and out of harm's way. The rapture comes. There's seven year period described by Daniel in chapter 9 and verse 27. And so we know it's seven years. And between uh, the Old Testament and the New, that last seven years of Earth's history is divided into two equal parts. Three and a half years at first, divided at the middle, and then three and a half at the end. During the first three and a half years, where we find ourselves right now in our study, we're right at the midpoint. What has been happening is the seven seals have been opened, which have, all hell has broke loose on the planet. Seven trumpets, seven more additional plagues that look to most people like a, a nuclear exchange of some kind, but still the world is in some semblance of working. During this period, two supernaturally empowered witnesses that most believe are Moses and Elijah are prophesying during this time and giving the world explanation for what has gone on in the seven seals and the six, six trumpets. Now, at the midway point, as Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 says, there's going to be something that turns the whole thing around to the end. And that something is called the abomination of desolation. That's right down the middle. And I talked about this last week. Abomination of desolation, very important phrase. All it means is abomination, something disgusting and terrible, of desolation, which means that brings on destruction. And so Daniel said that at the middle point, that's when that will happen. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 defines what that is by the Antichrist going inside to the temple and proclaiming himself to be God. At this point, the Jews just wake up, the seventh trumpet Blows, Satan is cast out of heaven and enters the Antichrist, and there's 42 months or three and a half years left. That is now the seventh trumpet sounds, and the last seven bowls are poured out, which brings Armageddon to the fore and the second coming. When the second coming comes, he comes with his people, and he establishes what is called a millennial kingdom. Millennial just means a thousand-year reign on a renewed earth. And so where we find ourselves this morning is right in the middle, where the Antichrist is breaking the covenant with Israel, turning his wrath upon Israel to wipe the Jews from the face of the earth. It doesn't sound like anything new these days, but that will be his goal, and we'll talk more about that. So now you know where we are and what has gone on, and now John has given this vision of this uh, woman. Let's start with the woman here in chapter 12. So here's what's going on. You know, behind the visible scenes are spiritual realities. The Bible tells us this. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul reminds us, it's not just about flesh and blood that we struggle with, but we struggle with the spiritual realities behind the things that we can see and touch. And so, in other words, the unveiling or revelation, that's the word in the Greek, means to unveil, the Lord now is unveiling 
what's behind everything you could be seeing on earth. You see a world dictator, right? You'll see Israel. But he's going to spiritualize it and show you the powers that are behind this world chaos at this time. And he starts with a woman. And the woman is easy to identify. They taught me in seminary. You know, I went to seminary for 10 years. So uh, that's just the course to, to go if you're going to get a doctorate. It takes about 10 years uh, of seminary. And in seminary, and as now a professor that can teach over at the seminary, I teach my students as I was taught. You interpret the scriptures by the scriptures. So you take one verse, you try to understand what could this possibly be. Who is this woman? Let's see, there are some clues. There are 12 stars, there's a sun and the moon. Gee whiz, have we ever heard the sun and the moon used together with 12 stars? Yeah, we have. Now you remember kid Joseph? He, he, he was uh, one of the progenitors of the Jews. He, he was born to Jacob. And uh, he wanted to fuel up, apparently, a little sibling rivalry by telling everybody about these amazing dreams that he was having. And so he told this dream. He said, hey, listen, everybody. I had this tremendous dream. There were, there were uh, 11 sheaves of grain and my sheave. And all of the 11 sheaves came up and bowed before mine. So his brothers just thought, you know what? We don't like you very much. <laughs> you think you're all better than everybody else. And then he said, <clears throat> the next morning at breakfast, you know, pass the waffles. And then he says, listen, I had another dream. And in this dream, the sun and the moon and 11 stars all came to me and bowed down. Well, at this, his father said, this is in Genesis chapter 37, his father said, rebuked him and said, come on, are, is your mother and me and your brothers all going to bow down to you? Now, when she is clothed with 12 stars, Joseph obviously adds to the 11, 12 stars, and her feet are on the moon and she's clothed in the sun, this is a way to know she stands for Israel, the woman you see in the vision in tremendous pain, trying to bring forth life, is Israel in her inception in the early days. The sun. Israel was supposed to be a light for the world. She had God's truths and commandments and presence and promises and patriarchs. Yeah, you know, and, and Isaiah 49 verse 6 says that the Israel was supposed to be a light for the world. And so we see the sun and then the moon under her feet. Well, Israel's supposed to, and what is coming, uh, crush the counterfeit light. Because the moon says, hey, look at me, I got some light. But it's just a big rock. It's not the source of the light. And so we see her trampling the moon, the fake light, and that shall happen. And then the 12 stars are pretty much right there, the, the 12 sons of Israel. 
Now we see that she's in a lot of pain. She was pregnant and cries out with pain as she gives birth. And even in this pain, we see that in two other places in the scriptures, Micah chapter 4, and another place in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 66, where Israel's described as a woman trying to give birth. And if we can see where the pain comes from, tracing back all the way to the garden where God promises to the devil that the seed of the woman is going to become the conqueror who crushes his head. And so he's always had one eye open toward the woman who he knows to be Israel. So she struggles to bring the child to full term. And we've seen that from Genesis chapter 12, when the Lord told Abraham, hey, I'm going to make you into a nation. We're going to call her the woman. And she's going to have your seed going through the generations. And through Mary, who's biologically related to the Jews, out will come the Savior of the world. And now you see her struggling, and in the Greek, it's tremendous pain. She, he sees an enormous vision of a woman in tremendous pain, travailing. And uh, that makes perfect sense for the life of Israel, what, what she has had to endure since she conceived the Savior in her loins, if you will, and for 2,000 years from Abraham until Jesus, we see uh, time after time she's persecuted, the woman she is, and that's why she's in great pain. Now, the Jews like to say about our Jewish holidays uh, that they, there's a way to describe a commonality about them, and here's what it is. It's a little kind of tongue-in-cheek. Here's what our holidays are about. They tried to kill us. It didn't work. Let's eat. Now, that is just the way we describe it. Now, at Passover, the Egyptians tried to wipe us out. It didn't happen. God interposed his plan, and uh, it didn't work. They tried to kill us. It didn't work. Let's eat. Passover, Exodus 12. Uh, you shall remember Purim, which is uh, a Jewish holiday that celebrates from the book of Esther, that wicked Haman. Uh, Haman approached King Xerxes and said, there's a certain race of people scattered throughout the Persian Empire who keep themselves separate from everybody else. Their laws are different from any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's best interest to let them stay alive. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they will be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring, dispatchers were sent by swift messengers into all the provinces of the Persian Empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on one single day. This was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. Purim, 
They tried to kill us. It didn't work. Let's eat. <laughs> Hanukkah, the same story. The Greek Empire tried to wipe out the second temple that was just being rededicated, but God had another plan. They tried to kill us. It didn't work. You know that's your favorite part. <laughs> so now we're going to find out what's behind this insane, crazy, from the beginning of the dawn of time, hatred and hostility for one small little people group who occupy land the size of New Jersey. Let's find out what the spiritual reason for this monstrous kind of hate. Oh, look, verse 3. An enormous red dragon appears. All right, so his identity is clearly defined, and allow me to pull from verse 9. The great dragon is hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Well, he's called enormous because he has great power. He's called a dragon for his fierce nature. And he's called red for the multitudes he has slain. Now he's got seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. We're going to talk about that later because it comes up later. But it usually uh, talks uh, and refers to governments and leaders and powers that Satan is using to do his work. And so we'll look at that when it comes up later. So the great dragon was hurled down, and he's also named what? Uh, the serpent. So now we see the identity of the serpent who was in the garden with our mother and our father, our legal representatives, Adam and Eve. The word in the Hebrew for serpent is nahash, and it means to whisper or to hiss. And here's what he hissed. Did God really say that? And she said, yeah, he did. And then he said, she said, yeah, she, he said, don't even go near it. Don't eat it or we would die. Like, like that's going to happen. It's okay. Go ahead. He's trying to keep something from you. Do it. And he whispered in all of his names, Diabolos in the Greek, which means to slander. Satanas in the Greek, which means to oppose or to be an enemy. Matthew 4 calls him a tempter. John 8, Jesus calls him a murderer and a deceiver and the father of lies. So, According to the vision, the dragon has a favorite place to hang out. Uh, he parks himself in front of the woman who is in a lot of pain because of him, actually, and waiting and watching to kill the baby that's inside of her. Now, how vividly we saw this lived out in the Christmas story, Matthew chapter 2, remember? Uh, here's what the dragon does. He finds somebody who will participate with him in his rage. So the dragon found his boy, Herod. And he said, listen, I, I, I got a, this woman I've been pursuing 
for thousands of years is finally going to have the baby. I need your help. We've got to devour the male child. So he says, ah, that's such a good idea. And he sends out soldiers to kill all the babies two years old and under. And you remember the story. Now he seizes the moment at Passover, and he's the one, the red dragon, he wants to kill him. And, and commentators are like, don't you understand, devil, that this is going to be your own demise? By your joy of killing God's son, this will facilitate your own demise. But commentators say something very interesting. They say he doesn't have self-control. That's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. He can't help himself. And they also say that in the Old Testament, it's death and resurrection very vague. It's there. But it's vague and vague for a point because he knows the scriptures, he knows the plan, but God just wants to keep him in the dark. And so now he falls praise to God's will. And now the very thing he wants to do is devour the male child. Perfect. It's time now. And the Lord lays down his life and lets him do his thing. And who does he enter? The red dragon enters into Judas. He wants to kill Jesus. But what a wonderful paradox when he kills the Son of God because the Son of God wills himself to be a sin offering. It's the very thing that disarms him. Colossians chapter 2 put it this way. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took all those charges and nailed it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the devil and all the spiritual rulers. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them. How did he do that? Well, listen, if the wages of sin is death and the devil got us to sin, he gave us parents who sin, and they gave birth to sinners like themselves who cross over the line. The wages of that is spiritual death. But if somebody has paid for all the sins of the world, there are no more sins, then there is no more death for those who believe. Therefore, he has no power. Because you have not technically sinned anymore because all of the sins have been paid for, nailed on the cross, paid in full. What did Jesus cry out? Taleo, which means it is finished, but it is also an accounting term, which means paid in full. And so that's how he did it. He came down and destroyed the devil's work. 1 John 3, 8 says that's the very reason Jesus came in the first place, to destroy the devil's work, and he did that. So he did facilitate an uprising that caused our Savior to be crucified, and with that, it was a boomerang that came and took off his own head. Three days later, Jesus rises. Our sins are paid for, and the way to eternal life and the way out from underneath the tyranny of the evil one has been paid in full and paved for us to follow. The third character in this section is the baby. It's so easy to know that that would be the Lord because he said she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. That's easy to see is death, resurrection, and ascension. And the rod 
of the scepter of righteousness that he rules with. Of course, when he comes back, borrowing from Revelation chapter 19, you hear that same phraseology. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. The thing about the Lord is, you know, Romans chapter 11, verse 22 says that consider the kindness and the severity of God. There's just the lion and the lamb. And that's what we see here. He comes in love to establish a world of peace and righteousness and goodness and love, joy, and all of that. But he's got a scepter, a rod of iron when he comes. It just says to me, you know what? I'm the Lord. God is love, but don't mess with me. Amen? That's kind of what I see. Now, after the child is caught up and the dragon has done his best to devour the child, couldn't really keep him in the grave, he's snatched up and he goes to the throne where he was before he came to Bethlehem. He goes on a rampage. And who does he go after? He goes after Israel still. And Israel has to take off and be supernaturally led into the wilderness. What, what's the fury after she's already given birth? Why are you still hunting this pregnant, now delivered woman down? Well, there's a reason for that. In Zechariah chapter 12 through 14, there is a Jewish state converted Christians who receive him at the second coming. If there are no Jews left to receive him, the scriptures are broken and God's plan is spoiled. Therefore, let's wipe out the Jews from the face of the world. And so the red dragon's been busy. So he finds a Hitler. It doesn't matter that she already gave up the baby and he got snatched up to God. Let's stop the Jews from living and existing so that when he comes back, that prophecy cannot be fulfilled. That's the only explanation why the red dragon has now found an Ahmadinejad, the president of a well-known country of Iran, who says publicly over and over again, Israel must be wiped off the face of the earth. And he's, they're still members of the UN. Nobody does anything about that. A, a president of a nation today saying, we won't stop until on the map you don't see Israel's existence. Who's speaking? Not Ahmadinejad, but an enormous red dragon. How else would you explain that kind of hatred? And if you want to see Ahmadinejad and Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin all wrapped up together in one perfect package, then it's the Antichrist because he's going to make them look like weak-willed women. He is not going to, no offense to women, but <laughs> I just saw somebody's eyebrows knit up like, what you saying? I'll show you weak. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, 
Listen to this, and I wholeheartedly agree. Next to the survival of the Jews, the most baffling phenomenon is the hatred which they have repeatedly encountered among the nations of the earth. This hostility to the Jews is as old as Jewish existence and it's widespread. Like many contagious diseases, it is always with us to some degree. The only explanation for a global hostility vented toward a small and insignificant people group must find explanation outside the bounds of the natural and into the realms of the supernatural. (laughs) There's no other way to explain it except there is a God. The Bible is true. And everything it says about this hostility toward the lady, Israel, is true and coming to pass in front of our very eyes. You don't have to say someday, somebody will arise and say every Jew needs to die. CNN, last week, that's what he said. And so there you have it. Jesus says now at this point that when you see the Antichrist go into the temple, and proclaim himself God, which he does write about now in our study. He says, he puts it this way. He says, if you're out on your patio and you hear the news, hey, did you hear what happened in the temple? The guy went in and said he was God. Don't bother going into your house to get your car keys. Run for your life. He said, you may be in the field working. And the news comes to you. Hey, did you hear that crazy thing? The guy goes in to the temple and he sits in the holy of holy place and he says, he's the Lord God. He says, if you need a jacket because you're out in the field, oh, don't go back. Jesus' words, Matthew 24, verse 15. Don't bother going back into your house, but just start running for your life. He says, my heart goes out to nursing moms and pregnant women in that day. Jesus' words. And they will. And this is the verse where he's prepared a place for them in the desert. Israel is taken to safety. Now let me show you where everybody thinks she's going to go. The lights. It's called Petra. It's in modern-day Jordan. But you've got to go down miles of this kind of uh, entranceway to find your way into the next slide, into this marvelous ancient city that's so walled off and protected that so many people think this must be the place because it's in the wilderness, they've got mountains, it's perfect. And so much so that there are Christian businessmen who have stocked that place with food, tons of food, and tons of Hebrew tracts and Bibles and New Testaments all written in Hebrew. So we've given the Lord our best guess, and if the Lord says, hey, I I like the idea, he might go with it, I don't know. But uh, (laughs) uh, definitely is an option there, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, so the cast of characters revealed. Now there's a war in heaven, war on earth. The rest of this goes a little bit faster. So here we go. And there was war in heaven, verse 7. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, 
and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he wasn't strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, and the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Mark that out the next time one of your kids says, you know, everyone thinks that. Everybody does that. It's totally accepted. The whole world accepts that. Just, just give them this verse right here. Who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They came, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So second point, conflict in heaven. Really kind of a simple idea here, but Satan has had a couple fallings, and so there's the original fall. You know that whole Isaiah chapter 14 deal? It's called the five I wills. Back in eternity past, when he became the devil, he was Lucifer, this like worship leader in heaven kind of cherubim. He said, I will exalt myself over the throne of God. I will be like the most high God. And it goes on five times there in Isaiah 14. And then we see kind of a fall. And we, we, we suspect that that would be when he winds up in the garden available to tempt Adam and Eve. But from that time, he was not barred from heaven because in Job chapter 1 through chapter 2, we see him in the presence of the Lord in heaven asking permission to persecute Job. And so there are other verses that show that he has had, had access. And so uh, Lucifer had that fall, kind of lost his throne, but he still had access. Ephesians 6.12 says, we wrestle spiritual weakness in heavenly places. And so we see that, you know, Christians don't like to think of that, that he has access to heaven, but he does for whatever reason. But those days will come to an end the last three and a half years of human history as we know it, he does no longer has access to accuse the brethren and do whatever else he does coming and going from the courts of the Lord. I like what one commentator said, God never made an evil being, but he made angels with the capacity for great good and joy, and yet with free will, which is innate to all moral beings who he created, which they exercise to their own good or to their own doom. Many have remained steadfast, like Michael the archangel and his angels, but some angels departed from the truth and revolted against the rule of heaven and became the unchanging enemies of God and his kingdom. Now, uh, Satan and Michael 
are perfectly fitted to verse one another because Michael's an archangel and Satan is not the opposite of God. He's a created being. He was an angel who fell. Now, classically, the devil or demon. Do you see? And so these two and their angels are warring together. Well, it was really nice to read that only a third of the stars influenced by the dragon's tail fall with him. And so we know from the scriptures, a third of the angels, now called demons, work with him to do his work. This is where, by the way, if you're interested, you're here, I might as well tell you, this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses confuse Michael the archangel with Jesus. So if you ask them, press them, who is Michael? They'll say he is Jesus. Jesus is God the Son, without beginning or end. The Word was God and became flesh. That is not an angel. That is the living God. So that's a big mistake there. So the devil and his crew and their pathetic coup d'etat fail. They're not strong enough. They lose access. Out they go. And heaven rejoices to get rid of them at long last. I don't think they're always there. I just think that they had some access. And from time to time, they were there. Now, is this the fall where, where the Lord where sends his disciples out in Luke chapter 10, and they start using his power that he gave them. And demons are flying out of people, and people are getting healed and raised up and set free. And they come back, and they're all excited and say, Lord, even the demons are listening to us, and your gospel's going forth, and lives are changing. And the Lord looks up and says, you know, I see where this is going. I see the ultimate. I see Satan falling out of heaven like lightning. You see, so most commentators say Jesus sees the future where the gospel is now engaged in the world and doing its liberating work and ultimately will be the thing that brings him toppling once and for all, now barred from heaven permanently. And now he has 42 months on the earth, and the scripture says, woe to the planet, because he knows the clock is ticking. Fortunately, we are out of harm's way, but there will be Christians, and there are Israel, Israel's there with the Jews. Two things the song says that I point out to you. He says, this is how we overcome. One is through the blood of Jesus, Verse 11, and our testimony. Well, we understand that we all overcome because Jesus died for us, and and spiritually speaking, that blood is paid for our sins. But what about our testimony? We're saved by the words of our testimony. I mean, really, think about it. Here's mine. I was 19 years old. I didn't know anything about Jesus. I was living a very immoral life. I've been hearing the gospel. I thought it, for the most part, was ridiculous. One Friday night, I went to a bar. What was that? A club. Okay, it was a disco. <laughs> you know anyway, I, didn't, I hate saying that word. 
And I heard a voice in my head. And I stopped doing what I was doing. I stared off into space and over and over the voice said, why will you go to hell when you don't have to? Why will you go to hell when you don't have to? Why will you go to hell when you don't have to? And I kept saying it out loud with the voice in my head. So I walked myself out of the bar onto the sidewalk. My brother saw me in distress, came over and said, what's wrong with you? And I'm still muttering, why will you go to hell when you don't have to? I said, Darian, I think that the Lord is real and wants, to, wants me to become a Christian. And I was hoping he would save me from this craziness. And he started crying and he said, I think the Lord wants me to be a Christian too. No, never gone to church a day in our lives. We said the sinner's prayer didn't even know what we were saying. I looked up in the sky and I said, okay, you're right, I'm wrong. That's my first prayer to heaven. You're right, I'm wrong. And I got the download. In two hours, I got the whole picture. Heaven, hell, devil, uh, faith, church, Bible, I got it in my head. I didn't know any of the details, but I got the thing. I was born again. That is my testimony. And he says, that's what saved you. How does that save me? It's not the word. He says, that gives evidence that the blood of the lamb was spiritually applied to your account and transformed your heart and life and your words gave evidence. So it says that he goes to our words in judgment to reveal the truth of how we lived our lives, whether we knew him or not. He just plays back the tape. In Matthew 25, when there's a judgment of a wicked man, he says, I'll judge you by your own words. There you go. So they play the words. And it's evident those words could not come from a saved, redeemed heart that has the blood of Jesus applied to it. Your words, however, when played in heaven, will sound like I just gave. The story didn't make sense. I don't know where it came from. And then my whole life changed Six months later, in my case, I was at Bible college. You have a story, you have a testimony. It's powerful. It is powerful because it evidences the work of Almighty God in your heart and your life. It showcases that there is a God. They can choose to say what they want about your testimony, but the Bible says it saves Last few verses and then a few comments. We'll take communion and we'll be done. Now, the war on earth. When the dragon sees that he's been hurled down to the earth, he pursued the women, the woman, <laughs> and who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of a time times and a half a time out which three and a half years out of the serpent's reach then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the women woman and sweep her away with the torrent but the earth helped the woman out 
by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who are those? Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so we finish up here with the cast of characters. We've seen the conflict in heaven and now the conflict on earth. Well, the devil, as we've said, gets busy. He knows he has three and a half years and he turns all thrusters toward Israel. Now, it's interesting here that they will flee to the desert, uh, but he's still after them. And it says eagle's wings here. That's a nice illustration from Exodus 19, where it says, after the Lord spared them from Egypt, it says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So when he goes into the temple, proclaims himself God, and the Jews all flee, they get supernatural help. So they don't know where God has for them in the desert, but somehow his Holy Spirit leads the Jews, especially a remnant of believers, away into the desert. And eagle's wings, some experts say, are they air Are they airlifted out and away? One commentator said something I really hope is true. Is it, are they airlifted by the United States? Wouldn't that be nice? It doesn't look like it's going in that direction currently, um, but every guy's got to have a dream. Uh, however it happens, <laughs> however it happens, God is involved and gets these people away. When he realizes that he can't reach them, the flood symbolically from his mouth, now experts say, a flood of military go marching out into the desert to find them and do away with them. But the Bible says God is going to start doing what he did in the Old Testament, and he's going to open the earth up and swallow those military uh, troops that go after his people there in the desert. Now, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us up alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrents would have swept over us. The raging waters have swept us away. But the earth opens up and helps. And it's not unlike what Miriam said after the Lord spared them. Through the uh, Red Sea, Miriam led a song in verse 12 of Exodus 15. It says, when the pursuing Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea, Miriam sang, you stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them up. Not long after that, in Numbers 16, a deadly, lethal uprising of rebellion occurred. And you'll remember that... Uh, uh, the rebellion was thwarted in a similar manner, and the earth opened her mouth and closed in upon them. Number 16, verses 32. So these are ways, they're symbols. It sure makes sense that that's what's happening. Uh, we're in a real military battle, and uh, these symbols are pretty clear. The point is this, the effort the military effort against Israel uh, will be massive, but the rescue will be sufficient. And then finally, the last verse says, well, well, 
he realizes, okay, I can't get them. The army just got swallowed up. Time is ticking. Who's my next best object of total hate? It's the Gentiles, non-Jews, who are truly Christian believers. They're called the tribulation saints because you'll notice the word church is never again mentioned in the tribulation. So these are folks who have converted, whether Jew or Gentile alike, they are believers, and he goes after them. Uh, This is the place where commentators say we have already seen that millions upon millions of people in the tribulation who don't take the mark of the beast are martyred. In fact, in Revelation 6 and 7, it shows that all of heaven is filled with them, and it says, a number no man can count. And it says, myriads upon myriads. Meaning, in the last three and a half years, there will be more Christians martyred than ever before because they didn't love their lives unto death, as the song went. They said, you know what? We're, we're in essence, already have died We won't worship you. We're not taking the mark. We're going straight along the straight and narrow path. And God receives them and rewards them eternally. And so that brings us to the end of chapter 12. We're going to learn more about the Antichrist and his dealings with uh, Israel and the false prophet in the chapters to come. Now it's time to remember the thing that has spared us all from such kind of turmoil, and it's the blood of God's dear Son. And so with that, let's pray. The ushers are coming forward to prepare for serving communion. Now, Heavenly Father, as we just pause to kind of take in a tremendous uh, drama that will unfold as your word declares, perhaps even in our lifetime, We pray that your Holy Spirit would encourage our hearts, as Paul said, that we are not appointed to wrath, but to receive salvation. In the context of this whole day of the Lord, we are not appointed to wrath. And so, Father, we know as in you have told the church that you would spare us from the hour which will come upon the whole world We thank you for that. We encourage one another. Father, let us live lights that shine bright for you. Thank you for your great love. Now we celebrate your great demonstration of love and that gives us the victory. It's your death on our behalf. In Christ's name, amen. Father, let us live lights that shine bright for you. Father, we know. Thank you for your great love. Now we told the church that you would spare us from the hour love and come upon the victory. It's your death on our behalf. We thank you for that. We encourage one another. Father, let us live lights that shine bright for you. Father, we know. Thank you for your great love. Now we told the church that you would spare us from the hour love and come upon the victory. It's your death on our behalf. We thank you for that. We encourage one another. Revelation chapter 12, where we find ourselves in the middle, smack dab in the middle, of the great tribulation, right at the middle point, and very intriguing chapter to take a look at. Chapter 12, you can turn there, um, because that's where we're headed. And as you do that, we'll have a word of prayer.